Welcome to Sacrifice to Success podcast. My name is David Weaver, and I am the owner of the Forgotten Heart Project. My mission is to help others create freedom in every aspect of their life. In this season of the podcast, we are talking life, business, and what makes you feel alive. We are speaking with business owners and entrepreneurs from all over, hearing about the sacrifices, the learnings, the twists, the turns, the ups and downs, and the successes that they have had in life and business. These are their stories. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Today, I have another great guest I'm excited to dig into and hear her story. So welcome, Paige Arnoff-Fenn. Thank you so much for having me, David. I'm thrilled to be here today. Awesome. Well, so tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So it's been a long, circuitous route. Um, It probably makes sense in retrospect, but at the time, I thought I was on a completely different path. Um, I, I really intended to have kind of a corporate Fortune 500 career, and that's where I started. Uh, working in marketing at companies like Procter and Gamble and Coca-Cola, big consumer products marketing firms, and I thought that's that was going to be my career path, and I'd work my way up the food chain and hopefully run one of those big companies one day. But in the kind of mid to late '90s, when the internet started taking off, I got bitten by the dot-com bug, mm-hmm. and I jumped ship from my big cushy corporate job. And I left to go run an internet startup out in Los Angeles in the music and entertainment space. And Mm -hmm. I just had a ball. We raised, I don't know, maybe $40 million or something, which at the time was minuscule compared to the budgets of the big corporate firms. But we just, we had so much fun. And I built the marketing department from the ground floor. We went public in 1999. We were sold to Yahoo. And it was just a fabulous ride. And then I was hooked. So then I did two more startups as the head of marketing. And those both had good exits as well. But then 9-11 hit. And marketing was like the first thing that got cut on everybody's budget. But mm-hmm. I had had three kind of successes. I, you know, I call them my three base hits. I didn't work at Google or Facebook or LinkedIn, but they all made a little money. But I was only in my 30s. And I thought, you know, I, I've still got some energy and having worked as the head of marketing at three successful venture backed startups, a lot of uh, investors, private equity folks, VCs came to me after 9-11 and said, what are you going to do now? We need help. We have companies that could use you. And I had just left the, the last startup. We had just gone public and gotten acquired. And, uh, So I started calling all my favorite marketing people from early in my career, from my corporate days and my early dot-com days. Everybody had recently been laid off post 9-11 because like I said, marketing budgets were zeroed out. Mm -hmm. And I just, I had people, I had projects and I put them together. And we just, I called the women, the marketing mavens, the guys, the marketing moguls. And we've been at it ever since. That was 20 years ago. Wow. That's so crazy. I mean, the first thing I was struck by, I was like, wait, you were doing what in the nineties? You don't look old enough to be doing. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I feel like I've aged in dog years. (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) Cool. Well, man. So looking back on, 
on your career, you've had so many like awesome successes. And then now to have such a long-term career, I'm curious though, why do you think people were cutting the marketing budget because of 9-11? Like what, what's the connection there? That doesn't really make sense to me. So for those listeners out there who were kind of in the business world uh, when 9-11 hit, it was such a traumatic jolt to the economy. I don't know if you remember the stock market just tanked and people just, they weren't getting on airplanes anymore. You know, it was such an uncertain time. The internet at that point, it was like internet 1.0. And I think people just froze and especially the kind of dot-com community because people didn't know with the stock market roller coaster going up and then way down whether or not they'd be able to raise money again that you know would would cash you know kind of would they be able to replenish their coffers mm. so people went into major cash cash conservation mode and the easiest thing to kind of shut down immediately on your budget is like okay we're going to stop our advertising we're going to you know you know lay lay off the marketing group and pretty much everybody cut their marketing from you know, big and small. You make a great point though, because in times of uncertainty, it's actually, and especially when there are not as many people spending on advertising and marketing, that is a great time to make sure your message is getting out there because it's not as like cluttered. There's not as much competition. Um, So I think after the initial shock, um, And then people said, well, what are we going to do now? And like I said, people started coming out of the woodwork trying to find me saying, you know, I have this investment. I have this small company. I'm running this business. We laid off our marketing department. We haven't been doing anything for a few months. And now I think we better start up again. We don't know what to do. Can you help us? And Mm -hmm. the people who had invested in those early startups that I had worked with that had good exits said, Remember what you did there? Can you do that again here? Mm. So I had a lot of talented people in my network who were all just kind of hanging out, waiting for something to hit. And I called and everybody was like, yeah, let's get the group back together. Let's do it. And we just started cobbling it together. You know, I built a website with a college buddy of mine. She wanted to learn how to program. Um, so she was kind of building her portfolio. I wrote all the initial copy. And, you know, that's the equivalent of putting out a shingle in the kind of digital world. So we, I, you know, bought the URL. We did a test on the name. Mavens and Muggles came out uh, in the in the lead, which was a big shock to me. That was kind of my working name for the group. I thought it was kind of cutesy. Maven nice. is a Yiddish word for expert. Or as my great grandmother would say, know it all. And a maven <laughs> is somebody of rank, power, or distinction in a specified area. And I like the alliteration. And like I said, I called the women the marketing mavens, the guys the marketing moguls. And I just thought it was memorable. It was a great brand name. And we're doing branding and marketing. And people remembered it when we did a, a test and market research online and we sent out a bunch of names. This is the name that came back clear the clear winner cool that's awesome okay and so now you've been doing this for 20 years so how big how many people do you have working with you so i've got about four dozen uh people 
um, independent contractors who work under the Mavens and Moguls umbrella. We're a completely virtual business. We've been that way from the beginning, not just because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, they're geographically dispersed, 14 major metro areas around the U.S. and as well as, you know, world capitals all over the globe. We've done work all over Europe, the Middle East, South America, uh, North America, you know, all over. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of a, um, when I started it, people were very comfortable outsourcing things like HR, accounting, bookkeeping, legal services. Nobody really outsourced their marketing and branding. That was kind of a scary concept for a lot of companies. They would hire an ad agency. They would hire a PR firm, but they wouldn't outsource the marketing. But, you know, like I said, having done this now for 20 years, when you think back of the Great Recession around 2000, what was it, 8, 9, 10, now with COVID, you know, people, the whole sharing economy didn't exist when I started. But now people share their homes, their boats, their cars, their bikes, people share everything. So it's not such a scary concept anymore. And interestingly, about three years after I started the company, Harvard Business School reached out to me and said, we want to do some cases on your company. And I went to Harvard Business School. We did a lot of cases, but we never did them on companies like mine. They were always, you know, Xerox, IBM, like huge companies that you've heard of, public companies, you know, big time CEOs. But at that point, you know, in in the um, in the kind of late '90s, early 2000s, a lot of people in business school didn't want to go work for General Motors or Xerox. They wanted to be entrepreneurs and go start their own companies. So. You know, a lot of the schools wanted to teach more entrepreneurial courses and study more entrepreneurial businesses. And they ended up writing two cases on my company. And, um, you know, I I think that's when I realized, you know, we've arrived. I mean, the world has changed (laughs) so much. Yeah. Uh, You know, I got my MBA 30 years ago (laughs) and um, the world's changed a lot since then. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. So I'm curious when you because you had these like three big wins, as you call it, your your base hits. Um, Do you feel like that had an impact in you then starting your own thing and moving forward? And I know you I know you did. But like, what was that impact that you feel like it had? So, you know, when you work in a big corporate environment, like a P&G or a Coke, you never really know. I mean, all the brands that I worked with, our numbers were great. You know, I got great reviews from my bosses. But when you work for a big established company, the brand I worked on most at PNG had been around about 35 years. Coca-Cola had existed for over 100 years. Hmm. So how much of the success is you and how much of it is the momentum or the inertia and all the other people that contributed to all the great work over the years. Mm -hmm. So when I left my big, comfortable corporate job and started at the very first dot com, it's a company no one had ever heard of before. 
And, you know, I was used to giving people my business card and they'd look at the logo and they'd be very impressed. You know, it was easy to get meetings with anybody. When you're the number two person globally in marketing at Coke and you reach out and say, would you like to have a meeting? People are like, oh my God, when can we get together? But you can be the top person in marketing at a no-name company and you reach out and people don't even return your calls or email. <laughs> so it was a very new experience for me. And when they hired me, they had a few very junior people that were like tactically good, but they didn't have any strategic marketing um, resources at all. So I was literally building the marketing capability from the ground floor. And the two guys who had founded the company, like a lot of the early dot-coms, were younger than me. They were very technology-driven. So I was kind of the grown-up in the company, which was, again, when you work in a big corporate environment, even if you have a good title, like I was nowhere close to the oldest person in the firm. There were people decades older than me. And here I was one of the oldest in the company. So, you know, I think having built brands that basically didn't exist and put them on the map and help them have these positive exits, whether two of them went public and were also acquired by bigger public companies. One of them was acquired by the largest uh, private media company in the world. I realized like, you know, I did learn a lot in these corporate jobs and I do know how to do this. Like, you know, at, at PNG and Coke, I used to think if I got hit by a bus at lunch, someone would be in my office in my chair before the end of the day. You know, there, there, they wouldn't even remember I was there. Mm -hmm. And when, when you start with a, a internet company from birth, you know, you're helping. We, we changed the name of the company or we created the name of the company. We did the tagline. Like our work was part of the DNA of that brand. And so I can point to everything that, that got that, that brand launched. And it was kind of part of my blood, sweat, and tears. My DNA is in every piece of it. And there were really good exits. The investors were thrilled. They made a lot of money. Again, not game-changing. You know, I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. I didn't make $2 billion, but I made a little money three times. And I had a ball. And mm -hmm. I met some great people. And I think when 9-11 hit, and like I said, after you, after you got acquired, um, after you've gone public and gotten acquired, they don't need you anymore. Um, I had not planned on starting a company, to be brutally honest, but there were no jobs to jump immediately into. But because people in my network kind of came out of the, the woodwork and said, help, we need you. You got to come back and help me. Mm -hmm. I just basically had the confidence that I knew I knew what I was doing. You know, my husband said, Paige, there's a red flashing sign in front of you. These people are saying, call me, help me. Call yeah. your friends, call the people you like working with and send them an invoice. You know how to do this. And, but I said, but, you know, I'm not really a consultant. I've always been on the client side. I was the chief marketing officer. I didn't work on the agency side. I was never in consulting. He said, yeah, but they don't need a consultant. They don't need PowerPoint. They need someone who can roll up their sleeves and get the job done. And that kind of became our unique selling proposition because 
a lot of agencies and consultants love giving you presentations and advice, but they don't really know what to do because they've never been in the decision maker kind of line management position. Mm -hmm. And all the people I brought on when I started, we were all the clients in previous lives. So when we go and talk to people, we've been in their chair. We know the kinds of decisions and we know that there are ROI implications. You can't just throw money at marketing and have it not do anything. It's got to, you know, it's got to do something. So, you know, we've, we had clients early on, like I said, they were ready to start spending their budget again. And they'd say, well, here's our budget. We need to do X, Y, Z. And my team and I would get into it and say, you know what? That's not a great way to spend the budget. You Before you do X, Y, Z, you need to spend a little less money and do some market research and decide what direction you go. X, Y, Z might be the right direction, but there could be a better way, a more productive way to invest that marketing budget that's going to be a quicker ROI. And if I were in charge of marketing, what I would do is A, B, and C. And the client goes, wow, like here I was dangling a bigger budget in front of you and you're telling me to spend less. And, you know, a lot of agencies, if you tell them you have 50,000, they'll spend the 50,000 without even thinking about it. But maybe it's better to spend 20,000, do research. And then what? when you learn what's important, spend the other 30 testing and learning. And, you know, that's how we got our reputation. That's how we got started. And it kind of caught on from there. You know, the venture capitalists, the, the investors, the CEOs said, wow, this is great. We don't even need to hire a marketing department. We're just going to use you to do our marketing because you know what to do. So a lot of our early clients were those technology-driven businesses that didn't really have any strategic marketing support. And they would use us as like a virtual marketing department to help them address their needs. And that became a great source of business for us. Nice. That's super cool. Yeah, I was, I, you got to it. I was thinking, man, the, that must have created so much confidence for you when you jumped into th- this thing, having those big wins. Because I know even just having, you know, started two businesses, once you've done one, the amount of confidence to step into the second one is so much higher. That's uh, really cool. And I, I think you probably learned the same thing. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to, you know, kind of have to pivot, but that's so invaluable and you're not so scared. You think, Mm -hmm. all right, I'm going to test. I'm going to learn. I'm going to try this. That doesn't work. I'll figure out another way. And, you know, I don't, I think it, it, luck does play a role, but you work hard and you learn a lot and you get luckier. Yeah. Yeah. You create more luck for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things for me personally is that I've just gotten so much more comfortable with investing in the company, in myself and whatever, like especially financially and just being okay with the fact that it might just be a learning experience. (laughs) Absolutely. My father had us a little plaque on his desk, which I have in my office. It says the harder I work, the luckier I get. Yeah. Love that. Okay, cool. So in the 20 years now that you've been running this business, what is like 
a challenge or a sacrifice or something that just didn't go your way that sticks out to you? And then what was the lesson that you took from that? Wow. I mean, that could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> um, I've got like, I should probably write a book with all the lessons I've learned. <laughs> I think in the first few years, you know, sometimes the people you start with are not always the ones that are going to grow with you. And, you know, I had to learn an important lesson that I think a lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs learn, which is, you know, I always want to kind of believe the best and be loyal and kind of help people along. But, you know, sometimes people are maxed out. They kind of hit the end of their their learning curve. And I, I think, especially in marketing right now, and it's always this way in marketing, having a growth mindset, always being comfortable, learning, growing, experimenting. You know, there are people that are really good at what they do, but they're almost like one trick ponies. Mm -hmm. And they want to, you know, it's like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, you know, again, we started with 9-11. We had the Great Recession. Now it's COVID. Those are different problems. Everything's mm -hmm. not the same nail. And you can't have people on your team that every time someone calls, they want to offer the same solution. That's just not sustainable and you can't grow that way. And yeah. so there were people early on who helped me launch who were not good fits as we were growing. And unfortunately, um, you know, I, I probably should have admitted it sooner than I did, because I think you want the culture of your, your group. You want to keep pushing each other. You want to keep growing and learning. And like we were saying, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to need to invest, to take a step back, to take three steps forward. And not everybody's on board with that. And if they're not part of the culture and they don't have that growth mindset, I think maybe you need to shake hands and part ways. But I think as soon as, as soon as you kind of see the writing on the wall, um, you have to kind of trust your gut with that. Mm. And um, it probably took me a little longer than it should have early on. But once you learn that lesson, it's invaluable because, you know, I think we've with each one of these crises, you know, with with the pandemic, with the Great Recession. I think we're more relevant today. I think we're leaner, meaner, smarter, more resilient. We've pivoted so much. Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, we've always been virtual, but my clients were not always virtual or hybrid. And so helping them kind of, you know, jump on the the rocket ship to, you know, move on internet time. Mm -hmm. It's been it's been hard, but I've got a great team, and I think the culture is stronger today. A, a team players like to work with a team players, yeah. and if you want to attract the best talent and build the best team, you got to keep the bar really high, and you don't, you know, one bad apple, it it really doesn't work. So I would just encourage people to uh, keep your standards high and um, don't be scared to make changes to make sure that 
the team stays really strong. Mm. Love it. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I, I, it's probably very across the board and just like my experience, what I've heard where, like you say, early on, you don't know that you should pull the trigger on some of that stuff sooner rather than later. And it's just, it's just part of the like natural evolution of growing a business and working with people. Yeah. Um, so tell me who, who do you love to work with now? Like what's your, your favorite company or like type of uh, person to work with? So, you know, we've had so many great clients over the years. We worked with some really big name businesses, uh, Richard Branson's Virgin company, the Virgin groups hired us a couple of times. We worked on projects for the New York times for Colgate toothpaste, some really big businesses. But the majority of my clients are like 2 million to 200 million in revenue, um, emerging market, mid-market firms. But we work with a lot of pre-revenue, early stage startups. And there's something really awesome at every stage of the life cycle. When you work with a brand new company and you help them find a name and a, and a logo and a tagline, again, you become like part of their DNA. And, you know, that is really exciting. I mean, you feel like those are my babies, like I made them. Mm. And that's great. And then to see these like mid-market and emerging market firms just take off, you know, that is incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. And you can see the difference you're making. Um, we worked with one company for years and they ended up getting acquired for $100 million. And they were, you know, not, they were really early stage when we started. And they attribute a lot of their success to our, our marketing efforts for them. Um, I grew up in New Orleans and we worked with a company down there before Katrina. And we were working with them during Katrina. And, you know, the company dispersed, people went all over, they were gone for months. And we really helped them get through that awful you know experience and help them kind of almost have a coming out party on the other end of the um the disaster they had their biggest trade show of the year six months after katrina and we helped them kind of rebrand and get on the map and again they they attribute our work to helping them come back and you know the the new logo the new uh the new tagline all the branding material it helped them recruit people it made people really proud um of the, of the company and the work that they're doing and all you know doing something like that for a business in my hometown during such a crazy natural disaster that's probably one of the things i'm most proud of that we've done in 20 years so I don't, I mean, it's hard. I don't know that I could pick any one um, story because I have a lot of case studies on our website. So if you want to read about some of them, some of the ones I've talked about are on there. But, um, you know, I, I, I love the variety. I love the fact that I feel like we can see the difference that we're making. And it's mm -hmm. bigger, it's almost bigger than like people think of marketing is like, an ad or a logo, but you know, it can affect the culture. It can affect the recruiting. It can affect 
the employee experience. It can affect the customer experience. And I love that it kind of touches all of those parts of your business. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's super cool. I love it. Yeah, that's got to be incredibly rewarding. Okay. So um, what would you, since you're a veteran entrepreneur, <laughs> 20 years, that's, that's enough to call you a veteran. Um, what, what advice might you give somebody who's in like the first couple years of being an entrepreneur? So, um, you know, I think if we've learned anything during this pandemic in the last couple of years, you don't exist today if you can't be found online. So make sure you have a really strong online presence, even if you're a brick and mortar business. Um, you know, you need to do kind of a audit of your brand. Um, you know, before people return your phone call or agree to have a meeting with you or come shop in your store or buy your goods or services, they're probably going to Google you. They're probably going to try and check you out online. So you may want to check and see what they're finding. You know, is there digital dirt out there? Um, does someone share your name that's, you know, a convicted axe murderer or, you know, <laughs> porn star or something? Like if you got to know what exists out there that might be confusing or that might send mixed signals. I see a lot of um, early stage people that feel like, oh, I better blog, I better tweet, I better have a website, but they don't have a consistent story or message. So when you see them on LinkedIn, they look very buttoned up and professional. And then you see them on Twitter and they're very snarky and try to be kind of a comedian. Then you see them on Facebook and they want to be real social. And there's always like a drink in their hand and they're always on vacation. Like you can't compartmentalize your brand because when people Google you, all of that's going to come up and you need to know what they see and what kind of message that sends. And you got to make sure that you have a consistent story to tell, because if you're trying to be too many things to too many audiences, you're going to dilute your brand and you're not going to build trust. And people like to do business with brands they trust and know. And so I would just encourage people to uh, really invest on, invest the time and energy to build a really rock solid online presence and with great messages. And you can't stand for 10 things. You can stand for like two things, maybe three, but like, what do you want people to think about when they think of you? Um, when Amazon started as a business, they were the world's biggest bookseller. That's all they did was they sold books. And back then, again, people were not that comfortable putting their credit card online. Like they had to earn their trust and get their brand out there. And all of a sudden, people stopped going to the bookstores. They wouldn't go to Barnes and Noble. They started buying their books and they got delivered fast and they were okay. You could trust them with your credit card number. And then they branched out into like videos and music. Now, I mean, people buy everything on Amazon. Everybody's got, you know, they've got a Prime account. You've got your uh, credit card stored with them. You don't even think twice about it. You would buy jewelry. You would buy anything through Amazon. 
But, they, you know, think of Oprah Winfrey. When she started, all she did was her talk show. And then, you know, then she branched out. She started a book club. Now, like, people will trust Oprah with any, you know, she's like a worldwide phenomenon who could do pretty much anything. But you have to earn that relationship and that trust. So start small and then build as you go. You can't like boil the ocean. Start in a niche, get really good at that niche, be known for that niche. And then once you've kind of conquered that, you can expand from there. But I see people get spread too thin and um, it's just confusing because they're all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you for sharing. Okay, two more questions. First one. What makes you feel fully alive? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, my friends and family, I think, number one. Um, I do Tai Chi every day, and hmm. that kind of gets my energy flowing. I think Tai Chi makes me feel alive. And I just, I don't know. I, you know, again, I grew up in New Orleans. I'm a big music lover. I, You know, I think when I'm kind of whether I'm being active or at rest, music really moves me. Mm. A lot of things, you know, I try and be very present. So um, I think I'm pretty tapped in. I, I try to always feel alive. I'm like Love naturally it. caffeinated. <laughs> that's what, that's the secret to your youth, right? <laughs> Okay, awesome. So where can people get in touch with you and find out more? So uh, with a name like mine, if you Google me, you really find me. And if you can't remember um, my hyphenated last name or my two name company, Mavens and Moguls, if all you remember is Paige and Mavens, you can Google that and hopefully my search engine op optimization works and you'll find me that way. I'm also on LinkedIn. Page Arnoff Fenn. So, um, you know, I'm easy to find online. It it does not send you down some, you know, I think if your name is David Smith or Susan Jones, might be hard. With a name like mine, you can find me pretty fast. Nice. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paige. I've really enjoyed getting to hear your story and appreciate you coming on. Thank you, David. This has been totally fun. Thank you for listening to Sacrifice to Success podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, please check out the link in the show notes and you can find all of the details there. If you got something out of this interview, would you please take a moment to share on social media? You can just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to somebody or post it on the socials. Let's see if we can change the narrative of social media and post valuable, positive content. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. So to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. And they mean a lot to me. If you'd like to know more, go to my website, davidweavercoach.com. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn or Facebook. Those links are also in the show notes. And I do also have a free training on my website as well. So thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time.